Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode will take a close-up look at a binge-worthy true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, digging deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On the show this week, season two of the docuseries, I Am a Killer. The documentary profiles 10 inmates serving life sentences with extraordinary access to prisons across the United States. Every episode recounts one prisoner's memories of the events that led to the crime, underlying motivations, and how they make sense of their lives today. Interviews with victims, their families, and detectives uncover multiple layers to the stories and reignite debate over rehabilitation and restitution in America's criminal justice system. I'll be talking with Danny Tipping, the series' executive producer. A few notes, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the whole series before listening on. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio. We appreciate your understanding. I've never talked about this. I never have told anybody anything except right now. I did the most horrible thing you could do is take somebody's life. I was sentenced to 20 mandatory to life. I committed a murder. I was charged with a capital murder, and I was given the death penalty. I recognized that I did something hideous. I made the choice. I took his life. Freddie handed me the 22 pistol, and I guess I knew what I had to do. The gun went off. Two shots. And as he kneeled in front of me, all I remember is pulling the trigger. Danny Tipping, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for uh, doing this interview with me. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I'm curious about, about this whole series, I Am a Killer, you know, having written a bunch of true crime books, working in journalism for many years, is really the incredible access you and your team have to the inmates at these various prisons. I know that it's not the same for every prison. It's not the same in every state. It's not the same for every story, but... How are you able to secure this access, sometimes getting more than one interview with these inmates? Yeah, I, I guess, uh, obviously, that's absolutely the key to the series. Um, when we set out to start developing and, and ultimately making the series, we, we were you know, absolutely adamant that we had to have access to the inmates to tell their own stories and, and not to have just one interview, but be able to go back and speak to them again once we'd gathered more information, uh, interviewed 
various contributors and people intimately involved with the story we're trying to tell and, and have them respond to some of the information we'd uncovered. So we set ourselves a pretty steep challenge right from the outset. We wrote a lot of letters, and I would mean literal letters, not, not emails. Uh, the vast majority of the um, communications we have with both the prison authorities and, and indeed the prisoners is by written letters, and obviously they're posted from the UK. It probably took a little bit longer than we we first thought when we started out on season one, but the groundwork was absolutely essential to to achieve what we've managed to achieve over the last two seasons. Now, I did go back after finishing season two and watch a few of the episodes in season one as well because I was just I'm so curious about the story selection here. You have some inmates who are deeply sympathetic characters who've either, you know, had a real personal journey since becoming incarcerated or around uh, whose stories are more ambiguous as to their culpability um, in committing the crime for which they were convicted. And then you also have some inmates who are less easy to sympathize with, who are just telling you what happened. I'm curious to know how you choose the cases to profile how do you how do you choose the inmates to profile in this series well that's a great question um obviously uh we start corresponding with a, a huge number i think we wrote over a thousand letters for for season one for example um and once we're we're in correspondence uh with a quite a large pool actually of convicted murderers um we start establishing the facts of their story and and their version of events and what we're looking for is a balanced stories that probably raise other issues that have contrasting facts and details so that there's throughout the series you get a, a real balance and a varied mixture of stories but more than anything we're looking for prisoners who at the very least are willing to be honest mm-hmm. that have accepted their role in the crime that aren't pleading their innocence that are willing to talk openly about their lives and the circumstances that led them to committing the crimes and, and as you say, a large number of, of cases across both series, there are what you might call mitigating circumstances. There's instances of physical and, and sexual abuse in some cases. There's drug and alcohol abuse, both in their families and, and as individuals. And whilst a lot of the prisoners will cite those issues, we're not looking for them or, or they're not looking to excuse their, their actions because of those. But they are facts that you can't ignore. One of the things in my experience interviewing inmates, it's easy for people to forget how people who are in prison never meet anybody new. I mean, they really don't. They don't have an opportunity to sort of the way that we all do when we meet somebody at a cocktail party or we have a new employee at our office. You get to sort of recraft your story over and over again. Right. You get to kind of figure out like what parts of myself, you know, are better to reveal and what parts should I maybe hold back a little bit. And the thing that really strikes me when you talk to incarcerated people is how, first of all, hungry they are to make a connection in these conversations, but how they are sometimes reticent to really reveal the things that are ugly that led them to where they are. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously you guys spend a great deal of time on these interviews. How much time does it take? I mean, or is it different for everybody before you start getting you know, to the truth of of yeah. who they are and of what happened. I think that's a really interesting point. I think we all create a, a narrative and we have the opportunity to refine it, you know, in every social interaction. Um, these guys aren't, aren't any different. They, they have a narrative that they've been constructing and telling themselves for years and, and in some cases decades. They don't have the opportunity 
as we do to refine them, as you say, through social interaction. Firstly, it's different in, in pretty much every case. But part of the real skill of our fantastic researchers and producers and assistant producers in, in the vetting and the selection process and the, and the standing up of stories is to try and find as best we can those characters, those prisoners who are willing to talk openly and honestly and, and try and identify that from their letters and the way they correspond. That's why we, we end up writing so many letters. And of course, then there's an element of, uh, well, I was going to say luck, but I guess it, it's the skill of the interviewer when they arrive on the day to firstly put the interviewee at ease and then try and coax out of them the truth or the, or the closest version of the truth they're, they're able to give. I think, as you say, there are obviously the guys, particularly those that have been in prison for a long time and have probably been through various programmes and counselling and the other opportunities within the prison system to retell and tell again their stories, to take responsibility for their actions. They have a version of events that they're, they're very well used to telling or sharing with maybe with other prisoners or counsellors. And that's the version we hear first. It's usually a mm. fairly, fairly well rehearsed, for want of a better expression, version of their, of their story. And that's why the second interview is so important because we go back again and then we can offer them some opinions both from the other contributors in the film and from our own investigations on what they've told us first time round to, to interrogate them a little bit more and to interrogate their version of the truth. One of the most interesting episodes to me was the Linda Lee Couch episode. There is a theme of trauma and abuse throughout many of the episodes, a lot of the inmates, as I know we'll talk about even more after we talk about Linda Lee Couch, uh, do have, you know, deep trauma, deep abuse in their childhoods and their lives. The Linda Lee Couch episode plays out very much like, um, I hate to say it plays out like, you know, a thriller, like a movie, but in many ways it does because we initially meet this woman who tells this story of horrific abuse at the hands of her husband. She married very, very young. She was like, what, like 16 when they got married. Uh, she she talks about his relentless abuse. She talks about, you know, finally getting to a point where she's going to move forward with her life, go to college. They have this big confrontation. Uh, he has a gun. She believes she's going to be killed, and she ends up shooting him by accident. Then we meet her daughter, Roxanne, who initially very much corroborates the abuse, but then the story takes a really hard turn because the facts of the case are not cut and dry with Linda Lee Couch. I would just love to know what you think about her story and that episode as a standalone piece of documentary. I'm very proud of that film. That one took us by surprise. I mean, often, obviously, we try and establish the facts of the case as, as far as we possibly can from um, court documents and the police reports and, and obviously the, the, the local reporting at the time. And this was quite a well-covered story it made the the local news but as as we dug deeper you know there, there were real layers to it that I, that we discussed endlessly during production and, and throughout the edit obviously there are Linda's claims of, of years of abuse at the, the hands of her then husband and she claims obviously self-defense there's the the hard evidence of the the murder themselves the trial the the, the fact of did she or didn't she involve the children in the disposal of the body, which coloured a lot of people's opinion? And then the premeditation, the fact that the gun she used perhaps wasn't her husband's and may have been bought by Linda a couple of days beforehand. Um, and it was extremely complex and, and one that left, I guess, the team in two very different frames of mind. There's no doubt that Linda killed her husband. Was it an act of self-defence or was it a premeditated murder? Um 
and and I think like with all with I hope with all the films in the series, um, it's really about the questions we're asking rather than the ones we're trying to answer. And I think that's true of all good documentaries to point people in the right direction and let the audience make their minds up. So one of the um, interesting things about this series is that some of the inmates that you talk about have undergone like a personal transformation of sorts, you know, after their crime, after their incarceration. And there's very often doubt cast on whether or not that personal transformation is authentic. Uh, I'm thinking in season two of the Leo Little uh, story and his you know, far left turn into becoming, you know, very contrite, very religious. And it's such an injustice that Christopher and his life stopped at 22. I get that. I understand that. But I'm still living. All I can do is live my life in prison, whether it be for the rest of my life or not. I'll live it to the honor of God. That's for sure. And this sort of sense from people on the outside that, no, it's not true. Uh, It's just a a character he's playing. What do you think? I'm not asking you to like, tell me whether or not you believe Leo himself, but what do you think of these, of these personal transformations? And is it a spectrum? Are some of them real and are some of them less real? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it is a spectrum. I think a number of these uh, prisoners have gone on huge journeys in, in, in their time in prison. They've been, in, in some cases, in there for a, a large percentage of their life. And, of course, they've had the opportunity to, in some cases, educate themselves to um, a number of them. I think what you're referring to is when they, they found religion and, and predominantly they found Christianity. And I think some of them genuinely have. And I think perhaps it would be reasonable to presume some of them are taking the opportunity to to use that to further their own cases, especially if they have appeals or, or the opportunity of parole. Mm. Uh, and I think those accusations are certainly levelled against a number of the um, business. But I, again, I think it's a spectrum. I think, you know, I, I think it would be unfair to dismiss them all. I think some of them genuinely have developed strongly held beliefs in prison. And I think perhaps it would be fair to say some of them have not. I'm really glad that you made the choice to include the stories of three women inmates in this season. I, you know, we already talked about Couch. I mean, her story is fascinating. Uh, I really do want to talk about the Kavona Flanoy case, though, because this one really does involve such a complicated set of factors. Again, there's no doubt, uh, you know, that she killed Hassan Abbas. There's, there's no doubt that the crime, you know, a, if it was a crime, was committed. Uh, but there's a lot of doubt as to the circumstances around it. And there's certainly a lot of doubt as to the process she was subjected to, the plea deal that she got talked into, uh, the sort of way the justice system works around a case like this, the the difference between how this crime would have been treated if it had been a white perpetrator versus a black perpetrator. I was very shocked when my daughter got 25 years. Only thing that they cared about is this girl came into Platte County and she was black of color. She killed someone in their county and they wanted to prosecute her. They wanted to send her away and they painted that picture. If you come in Platte County, this is what you're gonna get. 
Going to trial would have been a better option for her because all the evidence and the truth would come out. You know, you live in the UK. You probably uh, are a, a strong student of the American criminal justice system, having been working on this project for so long. Can you just talk a little bit about how you guys thought about the complexities of, of presenting that case? Well, yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, is a, it is an extremely complicated case. And legally, uh, in the process that Kavona went through in her, her plea deal, her, her trial and, and subsequently, um, and, and the mitigating circumstances, the background um, of, of sexual assault that Kavona had endured added to the, the layers of complexity. Um, and it was another one that, that really divided the team. It's a difficult one to, to sift through. It shines a light on the complexities of the American legal system and and in you know and, and the challenges they face. In fact, to be fair, so it was a real challenge, and, and we had to sift through it very slowly and be very considered in trying to try and present a, a really balanced um, case. And obviously, Kavona also stands out not just because she's a woman, and we've only told her a few stories about female prisoners, but because she's so young. You know, she has a, a, a son and a family on the outside waiting for her. It was a very different case to some of the others we've covered. So, by the way, was the case of Joey Murphy, um, who once again, you know, I was fascinated by the role of the mitigation specialist in that case. Uh, As you probably have discovered, you know, the criminal justice system in the United States is very different from that. Uh, in Britain and in, in England and is very different across states and across jurisdictions. And something like the idea of a mitigation specialist, you know, wouldn't be available to a different inmate in a different place. But to sort of look at the depth of the abuse and poverty to which he was subjected and to see all of the warning signs when he was a child, the fire setting, you know, these are classic signs of somebody who need, who's in severe need of intervention, yet he continued to be tortured, you know, neglected, <laughs> abused, and then committed this horrific murder, which even he, because he doesn't really have the faculties to, I think, doesn't really even quite remember it right and seems surprised by some of the details, even when you reveal inconsistencies to him. Can you just talk a little bit about that case? I know it's another complicated one. Yeah, Um uh, it had depths to it that we, we, we didn't fully understand when we set out to, to first interview Joseph and we dug deeper with um, the people that had been involved in his case because I think the level of abuse, uh, the poverty that Joseph grew up in, the level of abuse he received at the hands of his family was horrendous. It was like nothing we'd ever seen um, and, and still to this day. And we've, you know, that, as I said, that it's an experienced team of documentary makers. We've made a number of these films and there's elements certainly you could argue that the system had failed Joseph numerous times um, when he wasn't taken out of that situation. Again, it certainly doesn't mitigate the the terrible crime that he went on to commit, but you you do get a, a sense of understanding that it, it's just tragic on a level that not many of these, or also not many of the team had seen before. Um, Again, it's just it's, it's a very, very sad story, and it, it, it certainly, again, it, it it does not excuse the crime that Joseph committed, but it does. It, I think it challenges the audience. Joseph Murphy's uh, experiences and upbringing, I defy anybody not to feel some level of sympathy for him. I agree. 
Uh, I have a, uh, a legal question for you that, you know, you may or may not know the answer to, but I'm curious. Some of the stories in season two, I'm thinking in particular of the Mark Arthur story. Um, he is the guy who says that he killed um, because his friend's mother was being abused by her husband. It turns out, of course, to be more complicated. They had a more complicated relationship than he initially portrayed to you in the initial telling of his story. I wonder what the lawyers of some of these inmates think about their participation in your films, because I do wonder if, you know, they are now on camera talking even more about the case than perhaps they're, did, they did in court or their, or, their, or their side did in court. And, you know, some of them might be eligible for parole at some point. Have you guys heard from lawyers of these inmates who've said, you know, I've told my client not to talk to you, just FYI. I'm just curious. We have. Uh, there's only <laughs> I so much. You might have. We, we've had uh, we've had a lot of conversations with lawyers um, involved, and we take all their advice on board. Yeah, you don't. You don't have to. I mean, certainly, you're not uh, working for the legal teams of any of these inmates. And if they're willing to talk to you, I mean, that's journalism. That's the way that it works. And I think people should understand that you're not. You're not taking. I mean, I'll tell you what the thing that I really enjoy about your series is you're not advocating for a side you are just I think being the most honest to your audience that you possibly can be and I really appreciate that Uh, thank you very much and that is absolutely our defining criteria it's just we have no agenda other than to be as honest and and open with the audience as possible to present the facts as we find them and to give all sides of, of the case of the story all the participating contributors an opportunity to tell their side of the story and present the events as they need to so you know we're not advocating for for any anybody or, or trying to build a case in anybody's uh, favor uh you know it, it, there, there would be an opportunity to do so, that in in some of these cases certainly but um no i think we're trying to we're trying to stay the right side of that line i just want to ask as a final question danny tipping is there something that you hope somebody who watches this series will take away. I think a lot of people who will be attracted to will be people who, you know, enjoy true crime, like learning about cases and what happened. And this is very different from a lot of other true crime documentaries available on Netflix and anywhere else. What are you hoping people will come away with that maybe they didn't expect when they sat down to watch it? Well, I, I, I think exactly that. I think we'd like them to go away and, and say, I didn't expect that. Um, I'd like them to to question what they see um, and to discuss it. Um, I think it's a series that does raise issues. And I, I, I think, you know, people that do enjoy, you know, uncompromising documentaries uh, will get a lot out of it. Certainly, uh, it's perhaps not what, what they expect. I think it's better for that. Well, Danny Tipping, executive producer of I Am A Killer Season 2, I can't thank you enough for talking to me about your documentary. It's really fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Danny Tipping. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we review true crime documentaries, podcasts, TV, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on the reboot of the iconic TV series, Unsolved Mysteries. 
You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.